Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with international communications expert Josephine Latoussaint. It was recorded in September 2023. With nearly two decades of experience in journalism, communications and education, Josephine's work focuses on global issues like climate change, ocean protection and sustainable development. Advocating for the empowerment of small island developing nations, or as I'll be calling them from now on, big ocean sustainable states, Josephine draws from her personal experience growing up in climate-vulnerable Tonga. Amongst other things, we discuss the need to challenge portrayals of climate-vulnerable peoples in the media, the ways that words can influence reality, and the power that shifting established narratives can have on the perceptions and perspectives of such communities. So, let's get on with it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Josephine Latoussaint. From your perspective, how can communication help mitigate the worst effects of climate change in the first place? Communication is is such a powerful tool and it's able to not only educate and inform people, but shape how they see the world and influence public opinion. So in terms of climate change, I think one of the most important ways that communication can help mitigate uh, the effects is through helping people make that connection between what they do and how we live and the natural environment. And in turn, how those changes in the natural environment affect us who live in it. Right. So there is uh, implications with the, the choices that we make, the how we structure our economies and how we structure our societies. And I think because climate change is such a vast concept and it touches on so many levels and implicates so many groups and it's global. It really is literally a global um, phenomenon. It's hard for people to kind of understand why uh, it's important for them to advocate for climate action. And I think when you communicate that connection, it helps to make sense of all those debates, why we're actually talking about this issue. So that role of communication in terms of simplifying the complexity and making it personal and making it a meaningful to a person, helping them understand the issue is valuable. How do you believe current narratives portray people on the front lines of climate change? And what do you find problematic or inaccurate about those portrayals? So at the moment, if you look at media narratives and even most portrayals around people on the front lines of climate change, I would say, you know, just on a personal level, that it's usually a story of suffering, uh, desperation and helplessness. Whether it's a story about people who have been affected by a natural disaster or people who are being affected by climate change, but that is generally, I would say, and I say that neutrally as an observation. And then usually it is a setup, well, then what are you doing about it? You know, person X or international community organization X. I wouldn't say it is an inaccurate 
description of what is happening because there are desperate situations, right? When you are hit by a natural disaster and when you're in a particularly vulnerable area, you're hit by a natural disaster relatively frequently, like every couple of years and you rebuild and then you get hit again and you rebuild and get hit again. I mean, this is what's been happening in Tonga, for example, in my country. I mean, it is a desperate situation and you're not only losing lives, but your sense of safety, your predictability of your life, stability and livelihood as well, economic livelihood. And it does affect the psyche. So it's not that it's inaccurate, but I just feel like it's not the complete story. But like I said, usually you'll see it in what I would see as like an archetype, right? A story archetype where the suffering, the community impacted is not the main character rather than telling the full story of the experience and in the media coverage, in the new cycle, when that has shifted, when you're now looking at another disaster or another thing happening, global politics or something else, then that is relegated to the back burner. You'll see less, less, less updates. And the image that remains in the viewer's mind who had seen it is that image of suffering. Right. There is no follow about how these people are doing six months later, two years later. What are they doing in their own ways to survive and adapt? And that's why I feel like a lot of it is incomplete. It just shows the impacts and you're a victim of this global phenomenon. And yes, that is true in many respects, but it's not the whole story of climate vulnerable populations. It sounds like often these people are not even the heroes of their own stories. Yes, exactly. Right. And then if you think about just to take that example of what you said, the hero story, they are the secondary character to the hero, whoever that would be. The question is then thrown back to the bigger countries, you know, people who have internationally more means and more clout to say, like, what are then are you doing about this global issue and phenomenon? This should be challenged. I interviewed a a disaster communications expert from the Philippines, and he was saying, you know, what often gets missed is that the first victims are also the actual first responders. They're one and the same people. And that sounds very much in line with what you're saying here. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. You know, last year, Tonga had that massive tsunami because of the volcanic eruption. And this is just an example that, uh, you know, reflects on climate disasters that are directly linked to climate change. This tsunami happened, wiped out vast areas of the main island, affected more than 80% of the population, right? It was countrywide. Then there was a blackout in communication for three days. But there was a, a radio station that was able to broadcast online. And then just the conversations, I mean, it just gives me goosebumps when I'm talking about it, how local businesses, um, you know, the royal families, I mean, prominent people, people just in neighbors opening their doors to each other, responding, you know, giving out of their love and whatever they had to give some comfort towards each other. And that was for, for several days before anybody came to get in. However, <laughs> this is so classic. People had interviewed me, you know, because I was talking and I was tweeting about it, about my views. And this is big, global, you know, BBC, CNN. Their question literally was, what have you heard? How is it on the ground? I'll do the explanation. And then the second one would be, 
So when are the planes coming? When are the big boys going to come in and, and, and say that? Well, they didn't answer it like that, but that's how it felt because it was the narrative. And what struck me was it was more than once. Like that was the narrative. That was the expected. And I get that it's because you're trying to make it relevant to the international viewer. But the impact is that after the disaster is done and it still exists on the internet and it's still, you know, watchable again by people, you disregard the, the massive efforts that it took to respond. Remember, people felt that it was the last day. Literally, the sky turned black because of the ash. Everybody was chaos, but they managed, right? With a, with a little means, the water was running out, you know, food was running out. And yet through community, through families, through courage, uh, people made it through. But that's, that's such a classic example of how the first responders there, the, what the community does for itself is often overlooked in the global narratives. How can communicators and media professionals contribute to reshaping these narratives to focus more on the strengths and the capabilities of these communities rather than portraying them solely as victims? Yes, and I think it's related to what I said before. I think it's diversifying the archetypes, diversifying the story. I mean, recognizing that you are using a model, right? And then sometimes I understand when you're working in media, you're under pressure. And usually this has worked before, you know, it makes great TV and then you copy it. And I think taking the time to be more aware of what you're producing and the impact that you have. For you as an individual, you file your story and then you're done, go on to the next one. But you don't think about like your story is going to go then to a platform that has millions of viewers around the world. It has a global reach and it's there for good. And in comparison to the stories that are coming from the countries you're portraying, the difference of your influence is many, many, many times more. And I know that that's a bit heavy. Sometimes you're just doing it as your job. But I think if you normalize it and you learn to be more aware, to say, whose voices am I featuring on this? Um, am I following an archetype? Am I trying to diversify my storytelling? And also featuring uh, different types of voices, right? And especially voices of the vulnerable and listening to what they say, featuring what they say, rather than taking out just that bit that you think fits your story, but letting them tell their story. I think those are some simple ways you could help make a change. Are there any particular stories that you believe exemplify the idea of people on the front lines of the climate crisis when it comes to agency, power and influence in the face of climate change? I always like this story and I think it is one of those instances where the media did take a more empowering stance on things, how the Pacific Island nation of Vanuatu mobilized this global movement to uh, get the UN General Assembly to agree to ask the International Court of Justice 
to give their opinion on responsibility for climate change, who should take responsibility and whether we have a responsibility to future generations, right? So it is this massive thing. You're actually asking the world's court to say something about this issue, right? And then whatever they say, it will spread around and it could even influence how people deal with legal aspects of this. It started with young law students in Vanuatu, frustrated and fed up with the lack of action, saw an opening and took it to their government. The government agreed, yeah, this is something we should pursue. And then the government conduct this global advocacy, this climate diplomacy right across internationally, many nations. They went from country to country and organization to organization and rallied that support and then took it all the way to the UN General Assembly. And I liked how the media did, uh, you know, portray Vanuatu in like, wow, look at this, this country just going for it. And then you could see that first it was about Vanuatu, but then they picked up that it came from the students from young people. And then then the story went about interviewing these young people and then getting their voices out. However it turns out, that is a great example of not only of, of youth advocacy, the collaboration between civil society and government and the global movement, the global collaboration. So I, I thought that was an encouraging story. What are some key messages or language changes that could help convey the resilience and determination of these communities to a wider audience? Yes, I think one one easy example I would say about that is just pertaining to island nations like where I come from, right? The Kingdom of Tonga in the South Pacific. And normally we are described as small island developing states. And this is a terminology that is already entrenched in international language and multilateralism. So it permeates across. However, people have also used the term big ocean sustainable states. And I think this is just a, a great example of how, you know, you're talking about the same thing, but you're focusing on different aspects and just how that is able to open a new world, just the simple words of it. One of the origins of that concept was this Tongan professor called Epelihau Ofa, an article that he wrote, which was called Our Sea of Islands. When you read this article, he talks about how he was a professor in the University of the South Pacific, but also in Hawaii. And he would go and lecture to Pacific Island students about economy and this concept of uh, small island nations, describing how they are uh, dependent on remittances, small, economically fragile, etc. And when he would tell this to the students, he would see their faces just fall. He was training them to see themselves as these uh, limiting aspects. And this was the language of the world, of internationalism. And it was then where he thought, I don't want to do this. And so he talked about this concept of islands being ocean states and the fact that you may be tiny if you're looking at the landmass, but 
You are vast and so powerful if you're looking at your ocean territory. That's where that concept of just switching your mindset from how small I am vis-a-vis everybody else and I'm isolated. Look at the ocean that connects me to other islands. Look at the ocean that connects me to the other world. And this is part of who I am and then taking it into your identity. And that really resonated with me when I read that in university as somebody who comes from an island, you know, even now I feel emotional when I replay it. And I remember thinking like, oh my goodness. And it changed the way that I viewed myself and it did give me confidence. We are awesome. We do punch above our weight. We do do these things that you would not expect if you just looked at the aspects that has been plastered on you as a label. It just shows how language can access different parts of your mind and how communication can open new doors. When you think about Kiribati, this island in the South Pacific, whose ocean territory is, I think it's almost like the state of Texas. It's just really, really massive. And Even Tonga, right, where I come from, if you think about our land, that's 1%. If you think about our ocean, the ocean is 99%. So think about that you are defining me, defining us by the 1%, ignoring the 99% of you, of what you are. And if you switch to that and you think, okay, actually, let me use my 99%. Let me look at my blue economy. Let me look at developing my fisheries and shipping and tourism and and coral reefs. And if we're looking at climate change, just the pure capacity of your ocean space as a carbon sink. You know, I went recently to the Africa Climate Summit in Kenya, and they were talking about how the natural resources, the tree coverage, forest cover in Africa was an unparalleled economic opportunity. That's the words that the Kenyan president, William Ruto, used because of the capacity of the trees to absorb carbon from the atmosphere and sequester them into the ground. It serves the environment, right? And people are trying to quantify that and put a dollar amount, and then you have traded carbon credits. If you think about that and you apply that to the ocean and you try to say, well, how much carbon is the ocean sucking out in my territory? How much value does that put on you know, me as a big ocean sustainable state? What am I bringing to the table? You know, it's just different ways of looking at the, the opportunity that you have. It's the perfect example. <laughs> it's perfect. It's so it's such a simple shift in just perspective. Yeah, exactly. It affects you on all levels. Like I said, when I first read it, you know, it clicked to me as an islander. And even now, when I think about it, it still clicks to me and it it, it does drive me in certain directions. And then how it is applicable also on a geopolitical scale. It's like an anchor for me to have when you when you try to position yourself in terms of your identity. What challenges do you anticipate in shifting perceptions around those most affected by climate change and how can advocates contribute to overcoming them? You know, the just the amount of time for an industry to start changing their story, right? Start modifying archetypes and expectations of how you portray a story. I mean, to this day, the news values that we still run by 
were the same that was, you know, set up decades and decades ago, which is, you know, disasters, big name, celebrity, uh, proximity, you know, all those news values that you actually learn about this is what makes a good story and what would make people buy the paper, right? Because that's, that's the driving force behind it. We're still running on those. Now, more than ever, would be the time that you're able to challenge or undo some of those entrenched news values and communication values. I mean, big newspapers are losing readers. I mean, people are just going online and uh, making their own YouTube video and then speaking as an authority based on your own observation, right? I mean, it's so free. If there was ever a time where you could challenge narratives and find new audiences and find things that might resonate with some people that, you know, not your usual audience, it would be now. One of the challenges is trying to to change how things have been for for a long time, especially in terms of news values and in terms of power dynamics and in terms of who you're going to portray as the hero in your story. But this can be changed. This can be um, improved. How are the challenges associated with climate change communicated within and between the communities on the front lines? Presumably, people don't cast themselves as victims in their own stories. So how does the internal depiction of the challenge differ to the external one? When people are dealing with the impacts of climate change on the ground, you see it as a bread and butter thing that you're going through, a survival thing. It's like immediately and your thought process is how to get through this. To be honest, one would not see the language and the jargon that's used on the international level, like climate change, adaptation, mitigation, global climate finance architecture, that kind of concepts. But it doesn't mean that they're not happening. Like So if, for example, you see that the fish catch is lower in, in this area for some reason, because the weather patterns are changing, or I mean, even disasters, I mean, you, when you communicate it to each other, you, you're talking about surviving, about rebuilding, rather than international climate change language, right? You're talking very simple terms, rather than, you know, making this often inaccessible connection to climate change. I attend a lot of the COP meetings and a lot of the international conferences that have to do with climate change. And when you're in this uh, milieu, in this environment of conferencing, these high-level speakers and this big audience, uh, broadcasting, just the whole conference scenario, I find it a bit removed. I always find it refreshing that when you hear people talking about it at the international level and when they bring in their personal perspective and experience on the ground into the conversation, it shifts it a bit. It takes you out of that bubble and then brings it down to what is happening on the ground. If we bring a lot of those conversations, those high-level global conversations, bring it closer to the ground, I think that might make a difference, right? Simplify all that language, link it directly to the practical challenge and the bread and butter issues that people are struggling with. It may give a different vibe to the conversation. It may inject a different motivation to the negotiations that you're going to take. Sometimes I wonder how are those high level messages taken back to the people in the villages, in the highlands, the ordinary people on the street, whether they connect as often and as easily or as closely as they should. 
what's the single most important aspect of communication that we should be paying attention to in our communications endeavors? Whose voices we are platforming and whose voices we're amplifying? Why we choose those voices and what they represent? What's the biggest mistake that you see communicators make when attempting to engage the public on climate change issues? Blindly following a story archetype. Doing it because that's how you tell the story and just repeating, repeating the same style and the same approach rather than really trying to reflect the reality or giving voice to the people that you're writing about. I had a wonderful time talking to Josephine joining plenty of dots between her contributions and those of previous guests. But what stuck with you from this conversation? What will you take from it and apply to your own work? For me, it's that the descriptions we choose to employ can have a lasting impact on the people that they relate to. Not only on the ways that those people see themselves and each other, but also the possibilities that they imagine for their communities, as well as setting the context for the relationships that they build with third parties. In short, Words make reality. On top of that, something I've been thinking about a lot is the need to give people more of an opportunity to be the heroes of their own stories. So those are the things that I'll be taking with me. But how about you? What did you hear? What will you be incorporating into your communications endeavours? Thanks to Josephine Latoussaint for sharing her time and insight with the show. It was great. You can find links to some relevant resources in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to communicate in climate change. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts or by subscribing so you never miss out. You can find Communicating Climate Change on LinkedIn too. And if you think the series would be of interest to friends or colleagues, why not point them in the right direction? Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkits to help us develop the skills and ambition that we'll need for this vital task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.